You guys sound good this morning. Very, very good. There are times, I've shared this with you before, there are times where I'm just led to listen, to not sing and just choose to hear you sing. And uh, it was such a gift to me this morning. Thank you. Thank you for gifting me in this way and for gracing me in this way. It's good to hear you give voice to your love and praise of God. Excited to be here with you this morning. Excited to continue our uh, study through John's Gospel. So will you please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 19. Last week we learned a new word. Anyone remember? The word tetelestai. Tetelestai. Translates into three words in English. The words, it is finished. A statement made by Jesus on the cross just before he gave up his spirit and died. It, to the work of Christ, is, speaks to the certainty of the accomplishment. Finished means there is nothing left undone. It's been completed to the full. Because Jesus finished His atoning work on the cross in absolute triumph, we're free to follow Him in absolute trust. Jesus is to be trusted. And because Jesus is one with God and makes God known, God is to be trusted. This theme of trust is woven throughout John's Gospel, as you've seen. Trust is, in fact, why John wrote this gospel according to chapter 20, verse 31. Trust is vital to the health of any relationship. And so it's no surprise that trust is essential to our relationship with God. And today's passage works to build that trust and give even more reason to trust. This morning we come to the Word of God and we're encouraged again to grab onto the promises of God. Here we're told that the details of Jesus' life and now in His death were unfolding in perfect accord with all of God's promise. Say that again. We're told here that the details, the details, not just the big picture, but the details of Jesus' life were unfolding in perfect accord with all of God's promises. Because Jesus fulfills the Scripture, we can trust in the faithfulness of God. So today I want to consider how Jesus fulfilled Scripture, why Jesus fulfilled Scripture, and what to do because Jesus fulfilled Scripture. So let's read it together. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, our high and holy and heavenly Father, we thank you again for the enormous gift and privilege we have to come before your word this morning, to do so together. Father, I presume that everyone in this room has a Bible, has either a printed copy or a digital version. We've even placed Bibles under the chairs to ensure that every single person, every single person here has access to the Word of God and, in fact, can take a Bible and have a Bible for their own. We know, we know, we hear stories, we talk to people, we know there are people in the world today who can only long for such things, who can only hope and dream of having a Bible they can call their own. And so we are privileged indeed. This is a grace from your hand, and we do not take it for granted. But the Bible is more than just a book. It is a book, but it is so much more than a book. It's more than ink and paper, more than chapter and verse, more than Old Testament and New. The Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God. These are your words, words from your heart to us. And in your word, you have given us your word, and you have shown yourself faithful to your word time and time again. And so we ask this morning that as we come to the scripture today, that you would open our eyes and make ready our hearts to receive all that you'd have for us in your word. That we would grab on to it and declare, even as we've sung this morning already, How great is your faithfulness. We ask this through Jesus and for his name's sake. Amen. I think we can divide this passage three ways. A practical request, 
powerful witness and a promise kept, or in fact, promises kept. Verses 31 and 32 clue us in to the context and custom of the day. It was the day of preparation, a Friday. The Sabbath falls on Saturday, and because the Sabbath was a a holy day of appointed rest, all preparations for Saturday had to be completed before sundown on Friday. This particular Sabbath was even more important, a high day, as John notes, because it was Passover, the annual feast by which the Jewish, Jewish people commemorated their deliverance from Egypt. Therefore, the Jews, that is the Jewish authorities, not wanting the crucified to be on display during their annual celebration, that would definitely dampen the mood. Dead bodies typically aren't part of one, one's party plans. And so they asked Pilate to expedite the crucifixions and remove the bodies from sight. Pilate complied with their request, so the Roman soldiers began breaking the legs of the victims. And it was not uncommon for crucifixions to last many hours and even days. It was intended to be a slow, torturous death. But on occasions like this one, when speeding the process was necessary, the Romans would smash the legs of the crucified with an iron mallet. And the reason is because it quickly deprived the victim of oxygen. With their arms outstretched and positioned slightly higher than the shoulders, the only way the crucified could fill their lungs and take in air was by pushing down on the spike driven through their feet, which momentarily eased the tension in their arms and chest, uh, but came at great pain, as you can imagine. I mean, each gasp was excruciating. Each one was measured and came at a premium. But once the legs were broken, it became impossible as the option to push down on the feet was removed entirely. No longer could the victim keep his chest cavity open, so strength in the arms quickly vanished and asphyxia soon followed. And such was the final outcome of the two men crucified on either side of Jesus. In verses 33 through 35, John testifies to exactly what happened with Jesus. The soldiers came to him, but saw that he was already dead. So breaking his legs became unnecessary. Instead, one of them thrust a spear up into his side, probably just to verify that he had in fact died, and at once there came out blood and water. Now medical experts have long wrestled with exactly what happened here. Most seem to believe that the upward thrust of the spear pierced Jesus' heart and that blood from the heart mingled with fluid from the pericardial sac to produce a flow of blood and water. This is the most common theory. And apparently, I'm taking their word and you'll need to take my word. Apparently, this has been substantiated by tests performed on cadavers. Whatever the medical opinions are, however, there is no doubt that John is emphasizing that Jesus was dead. 
and that he died as a flesh and blood human being like us. That's the point of verse 35. John is stressing that he was there. Listen, I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes, and I bear truthful witness to the fact. John connects this to Old Testament prophecy in verses 36 and 37, making clear to the reader that these things took place. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. He sees in verse 36 the fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46, which talks about the Passover lamb, that none of its bones were to be broken. Similarly, John sees in verse 37 the fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10 that speaks of the piercing of God's shepherd. And so with these comments then, John is emphasizing on the one hand, hear this, that Jesus is the Passover lamb whom God has offered in our stead, while at the same time Jesus is the good shepherd to whom all the nations will one day look. Now, it's important that we know that these details aren't included just because. As the bones of the Passover lambs were not to be broken, neither were those of Christ. As the Messiah shepherd whom God put forth was to be pierced, so was Christ. Here is Jesus then, at Passover, being offered as the Lamb of God. On that Good Friday, the Good Shepherd died in fulfillment of Scripture according to the promise of God. The Jews' practical request and John's powerful witness each underscores, each underscore God's promises kept. That's the point. John is careful to emphasize why the events unfolded as they did because he means to strengthen our confidence in God and in the promises of God. To show that God is faithful. I want to think through this for a moment. Would it have been a big deal if Christ's legs had been broken or if his side had not been pierced. I mean, he had already suffered so much worse, right? He had already suffered so much worse and it wouldn't have diminished his atoning work in the least. Remember, it is finished. Had his legs been broken and his side not been pierced, I doubt anyone would have pointed to Exodus 12 or Zechariah 12 and thought anything was amiss. But the fulfillment of Scripture is a recurring theme in John's account of Christ's passion. 
So you may remember John 13, 18 and 17, 12 say the betrayal of Jesus by Judas occurred so that the scripture will be fulfilled. John 19, 24 says the gamble for Jesus' tunic took uh, on the part of the soldiers was to fulfill the scripture. John 19, 28 says the statement, I thirst, took place to fulfill scripture. Here, 1936 says the legs of Christ were not broken, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And verse 37 says the side of Jesus was pierced to fulfill yet another scripture. So why the many recurrences, uh, recurring references to scripture? Why is it important to know that the individual details of Christ's death each fulfilled scripture in its own unique way? Why is John so careful to tell us these things? Why did the Spirit of God lead John to include these important details? That's the question I was thinking of this week. And the answer I've come to is simply because God wants us to know that all of His promises, however small or relatively minor, will come true. He wants to assure us that He takes even the smallest things into account, hear this, and therefore speaks into even the smallest details of our lives. Not just the big picture stuff, even the smallest details of our lives. These details are included, I think, because God knows our doubts. He knows the often unspoken questions of our hearts. He knew there would be times in our own lives the hard times in particular, when we would wonder if he really can be trusted. Ever been there? Now granted, the word trust does not appear in this passage. But the word believe does. After describing how Jesus' bones weren't broken and his side was pierced, John gives his reason for doing so that we would believe. That you also may believe, he says, meaning that he desires that you and I believe in the same way he did. Not that John is looking for mere agreement with the particulars of Jesus' death. Instead, he's calling us to trust God because all the particulars matter. And they point to the promises of God. The reason it unfolded this way is because God planned it this way. All, 
all of this went according to God's foreknowledge and plan. Every single detail of Christ's passion, systematically fulfilled centuries-old prophecies that had been written down beforehand. And that matters. Consider this list. The betrayal of a familiar friend. We find that being prophesied in Psalm 41.9. The forsaking of the disciples, Psalm 31.11. The false accusation, Psalm 35.11. The silence before his judges, Isaiah 53.7. The fact that he was proven guiltless time and time again. Isaiah 53, 9. Being included or numbered with sinners. Isaiah 53, 12. Being crucified. Psalm twenty two sixteen. The mockery of the spectators. Psalm 109, 25. The taunt of non-deliverance. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. The gambling for his garments, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. The prayer for his enemies, Isaiah fifty-three, twelve. The cry of forsakenness, Psalm twenty-two, one. The yielding of his spirit into God's hands, Psalm thirty-one, five. The bones not broken, Exodus twelve, forty-six. You get the picture. The side pierced, Zechariah twelve, ten, and even his burial in a rich man's tomb is prophesied in Isaiah 53.9. Each detail, each detail had been prophesied and each was fulfilled by Jesus. Did you know that in his lifetime, Jesus fulfilled 333, I'm sorry, 332 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament. Now let me ask you, are you curious? I was. Are you curious what the mathematical probability of that is? That that one man in one lifetime can fulfill 332 prophecies. One in 840 untrigtillion. Did you even know such a number existed? That is the number 840 followed by 96 zeros. One in 840 Untrigtillion. So why all the references to the fulfillment of Scripture? To build trust. To build trust. To strengthen faith. As Max Lucado says, to lay just one more plank on a sturdy bridge 
over which any doubter can walk. Or as the Apostle John says here, so that you also may believe. The promise of God and the passion of Christ. The promise of God and the passion of Christ. If you don't hear anything today, hear this. The promise of God and the passion of Christ is simply this. I'm God. And I'm good. And you can trust me always. The promise of God and the passion of Christ. I am God. I am good. And you can trust me always. Now, to trust God's promises is to trust God himself. And so I want to close by offering four ways to strengthen your your trust in God. Four ways to strengthen your trust in God. I doubt any of these are particularly new, but hopefully they'll be encouraging reminders. Number one, read God's promises. Read God's promises. Now, when we make a promise, we give our word, right? That's what we say. I give you my word. When we make a promise, we we give our word. And of course, our word isn't always as reliable as we'd like it to be, even if only because we sometimes overextend ourselves, we can't see into the future, we have knowing, no way of knowing. Uh, how circumstances will change. So even when we have the very best intentions, right? Even when we have the very best intentions, we don't always follow through on our promises. There simply are too many variables beyond our control. God, however, is not limited as we are, and therefore God's word is always true and trustworthy. He does not make a promise thoughtlessly, or flippantly, as we sometimes do. When God makes a promise, dear people, He not only intends to fulfill it, but is also fully capable of doing so. There is not one word or promise from God that will not come to pass. There, are, there is nothing lacking in His character, in His wisdom, In his foreknowledge or might, there are no unforeseen circumstances that catch him off guard. With God, there is no deficiency whatsoever. So when he gives you his word, you can bank on it. Now realize, let's connect the dots here. Realize that when you read your Bible, you're reading the promises of God. What a comfort to the believer's heart. This this isn't about, I got to keep up with my Bible reading plan. Although that can help. This isn't about, I have a study to prepare for tonight though that is important. This is about filling your life with the promises of God. What a weapon in the believer's hand is the Word of God. 
Doubt is defeated as we hold, grab hold of such things. Fear falls smitten by the sword of Scripture. Trials from without and temptations within are triumphantly overcome. Spurgeon suggests, he says, there may be a promise in the word which exactly fits your case, but you don't know it, and therefore you miss its comfort. You're like prisoners in a dungeon, he says, and there may be one key in the bunch that would unlock the door and you'd be free. But you don't look for it. And so you remain a prisoner still, though liberty is so near at hand. There may be a potent medicine. This is so Spurgeon-esque. There may be a potent medicine in the great pharmacopoeia of Scripture. And you may yet continue sick unless you will examine and search the Scriptures to see what God has promised. Read your Bible and remember the promises of God. Number two, pray God's promises. Pray God's promises. I want to tell you from personal experience that praying, praying, praying through the Bible will bring tremendous benefit to your soul. Not just praying, though that's important, but specifically praying the Bible. As you read your Bible and discover the promises therein, allow God to care for you by committing them to your heart through prayer. There's just something about prayer and specifically the act of praying the Bible that ministers to our innermost being. The heart is blessed when we take in God's word, meditate upon it and respond to it in prayer. For instance... When you perceive a lack of spiritual progress in your life, you might pray from Philippians 1.6, God, you have assured me that you will complete the work you've begun in me. And that in fact, this work will be perfected at the day of Jesus Christ. I grab hold of this promise. When you grow tired of striving in your own strength, you might pray from Matthew eleven twenty eight, Lord, you welcome the weary and heavy laden and you promise rest for the soul. And so I do now take your yoke. I grab hold of it. I want to learn from you and discover this rest I so desperately desire. I'm grabbing hold of this promise. When you're facing an uncertain future and you're not sure what to do, you might pray from Proverbs 3, 5, God, help me to not lean on my own understanding. I want to trust you. I want to trust you not just with some of my heart or even most of my heart. I want to trust you with all of my heart, knowing that you will make my path straight. I grab hold of this promise. 
when you're short on money and you aren't sure how the, e- the ends will meet, you might pray from Matthew 6, 11, Oh, Abba, my Father, I want, I want emergency savings. I want a well-padded retirement. I want financial security. But will you please help me to be content with daily bread? Thank you, Abba, for knowing my every need and promising to meet it. I grab hold of his promise. Or when Satan tempts you to despair and reminds you of the guilt within, you might pray from Romans 8.1, God, You have told me that there is no condemnation, none. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I grab hold of this promise. Please help me to see myself as you do. If you need peace, search your Bible for promises of peace. If you need wisdom, search for promises of wisdom. If you need energy and renewed strength, search for promises of strength, on and on. Whatever the need may be, there are promises from God meant to provide for those needs, and I'm just saying, take them in, meditate upon them, and pray through them. Number three, share them. Share God's promises. Read God's promises. Pray God's promises. Share God's promises. Just as praying the promises have a solidifying effect on your heart, so does sharing them with others. In fact, I was, uh, I was recently reading a book. I finished a book. I think I've mentioned it here. It's uh, uh, co-authored by Derek Prime and Alistair Begg. It's titled On Being a Pastor. And there's a section in there where they're talking about their own personal devotions. And then they give tips for devotions. And one thing that Derek Prime mentioned, and this has been so wonderful, is he said every day in his Bible reading, he looks for a phrase or a verse or a thought or even a word sometimes that's, that's going to kind of mark his day. That thought is going to mark his day. That word is going to mark his day. And then he's intentional to share that thought or that word with as many people as possible that day, just in casual conversation. Because he understands there's something about taking it in and then giving it away that has a solidifying effect on your heart. I want to illustrate this with in a way that many of you are already familiar, especially those part of our prayer chain. As you know, uh, Andrea Gladstone coordinates this ministry. So when a request comes to her, she records it and sends it via email to all who've requested to take part in this ministry. If you're not on the prayer chain, I just ask you to think about joining. It's a tremendous benefit in praying for each other in this way. And so... The expectation is is very minimal, simply that when the inbox or when the prayer request hits your inbox throughout the week, 
that, that, you, that you simply take a moment or two to take it in and offer it to God. But Andrea goes a couple steps further and adds even greater benefit. Oftentimes, she'll include her own prayer for the specified request in the email in written form. So you're reading the request, and then you're reading Andrea's prayer for the request. And I have to say that I have grown as a prayer by reading and taking in her prayers. Her prayers are chock full of God's promises. Not only this, she even, she even includes a few scriptures of promise that speak to the specific request. So here I am praying for the individual requesting prayer, but I'm being strengthened in the Lord. In other words, by sharing God's promises with those on the prayer chain, Andrea is testifying that God is good and can be trusted. That's the power of sharing your faith. Sharing God's promises solidifies them in your own heart and it strengthens the hearts of others. And then fourth and finally, this kind of encapsulates the first three. Live by God's promises. Read them, pray them, share them. Live by them. This is the whole point, isn't it? The very reason, the very reason God has chosen to record his promises in the Bible is so that we would live by them. James Montgomery Boyce makes the point that trusting God to fulfill his word does not mean doing nothing. Rather, we should actively participate in its fulfillment. I think this is a very good insight. Trusting God to fulfill His word does not mean sitting back and doing nothing, but rather participating in its fulfillment. Sanctification, for example, is a promise from God. He sanctifies those He saves. But this doesn't mean that we don't have a participatory role in the sanctifying process. Unity in the church is another example. As believers in Christ, already we are united to one another. But, but our day-to-day behavior can either demonstrate that unity or work against it. Sharing your faith is another example. Each person who has been saved to Christ is an ambassador for Christ and a witness to Christ, but the strength of our witness is helped or hindered by your day-to-day decisions, by the choices you make throughout the day. 
So to read, pray, and share God's promises implies that we will live by them with hope. Hope is allowing future reality to break into and affect your present day. There's an undeniable relationship between our trust in God and our hope in God. You know, there are two main lines of prophecy in the Bible. The first deals with Christ's first coming. The second with his second. All the prophecies concerning his first advent have been fulfilled. All those concerning his second are being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in due time. So, when we talk about the relation between trust and hope, we're acknowledging that we can trust God with what is to come because of all that has already occurred. And because we live in the assurance of what has already occurred, we can hope with confidence that God will do all that he has promised. So we have Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We've considered how Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Why Jesus fulfilled Scripture. And what to do because Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Because Jesus fulfills the Scripture. We can trust in the faithfulness of God. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Amen. Thank you again for these moments, God. Thank you for ministering to us in them and with them. Thank you for your word, which speaks to your word. You've given us your word. You've made us promise after promise after promise. You please help us to read them and pray them and share them and, in fact, live by them for our own good and to your great glory. Amen.